Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. But tonight, Slake number four. Let's hear it. Let's hear it. Um, oh. Okay. So, uh, as you know, Slake, LA's very own, very cool literary journal. Um, I'm just going to throw here to uh, Joe Donnelly and Laurie Ochoa. Ochoa? I asked. I messed it up. Um, and they're going to take over. So thank you so much for coming. Feel free to grab some snacks. Thanks. Thank you. That was... Brevity is the soul of wit. Thank you for that brief and soulful introduction. Why don't you guys get something now before we get started? Because as always, it cost me a lot of money. And there's a wide selection of beers, slightly chilled white wine, I think Mondavi red, and a few sodas in there. Cookies. You mentioned the cookies, yeah. Yeah, cookies from Ralph's. More expensive than you would guess. I found that out at the checkout line. Uh, two types of coffee, decaf and regular. Yeah. So don't be shy. We can get this going so then you don't feel weird when people are reading and you know everybody has something. Do you want to add anything to that, Lori? To cookies? Yeah. <laughs> we we like cookies when we're making slake. There's a. There's, the wine is in the cooler, the white wine. Well, why don't, why don't we um, mention Slake a little bit while people sit, settle down? This is issue four. These, they're, they're, it's only contributors here. They know all about it. It's not only contributors. Oh. <laughs> no. Let's put, so one, one thing I want to mention, though, is that the art in, in Slake um, took quite a long time. And we had um, Anne McCadden, who's an amazing painter, um, working with our art director, um, Alex Bacon, to do things like hand cut you know, um, these collages and gluing things. And they were burning paper. And, and they made these beautiful um, title pages that um, I hope you look through. And, and appreciate. And uh, I think, Joe, you wanted to read the yes. beginning letter. I'm not done talking yet. Well, we should, get, we should get some readers up here. I got a lot to say. <laughs> <laughs> say, say something then. Uh, okay, everybody, thank you for coming. Um, I know you have a lot of entertainment choices on a Friday evening. There's someone who has an art show featuring bunnies, ironically, and somewhere, and there's the Lakers and the Avengers just down there and you chose us Dodgers are playing. and the Dodgers are playing and you chose us so thank you very much for coming and we have a fantastic lineup of amazing contributors to issue number four uh, 
dirt. And um, since Sam Slavic couldn't make it tonight, he was going to read, but he is in uh, Chicago at the... Uh, Occupy. With Occupy at, I don't know, the WTO or the yeah. NATO. Yeah. Uh, I was hearing about that on the way People here. who piss me off, man, they're there in Chicago. I don't know if they piss on, me on off. On the way, driving here, I kept hearing, this is what democracy looks like. So I was very thinking about Sam. You drove here from Chicago? No, they're playing on the radio. Oh. Anyway. Yeah. And um, Melissa's uh, partner, uh, Jamie, just graduated from sheriff school. Yeah. Yay. She went through hell and back, and she's back, and we're very, very, very proud of you. And thank God you're going to be out there. Congratulations. Yes. I got poor people profiled over the weekend in Newport Beach. Uh, what? Um, no, I just, it's, so I got j totally jacked up because my car is such a beater. They asked if I had insurance because in case I hit somebody. And I said, you mean with my car? And they said, yeah. And I was like, oh, this is what a lot of people go through five times a day. Anyway. Um, what did you do? Nothing. It was just parked. Well, yeah, my it, my bumper's falling off and my <laughs> registration was expired. I got poor profiled. Anyway, um, so this is the editor's letter, and uh, I just sort of maybe thought it would be a fun way to set the tone for reading here. It's also going to be a fun way to... How do you guys do this? Where do you put the book when you do this? Okay. Dirty Deeds. And Lori and I wrote this introduction to Slate issue number four. But you're going to read it. Mm -hmm. Yes, I'm going to read it. Good. Yeah, because I'm on the thing out there. Do you want to read it? Do you want to trade lines? No. Okay. Remember how you measured a good day when you were a kid? By how dirty you were at the end of it, right? You'd come home for dinner covered in filth, and your parents would pretend to be angry and insist that you clean up immediately. But on the way to the sink, you'd catch the secret smiles behind their dutiful frowns. They knew you were doing exactly what you were supposed to be doing, digging in, getting down, immersing yourself deeply in the world. The dirt on your face and feet and knees and hands and neck was evidence of how alive you were, and this made them happy. Play gets you dirty. Work gets you dirty. Fighting gets you dirty. Love and sex and sorrow and joy. It all gets you dirty. And when you're done, you clean up and do it again. It all goes back to dirt. That's right. It all goes back to dirt. Dig it. So this is what we're about tonight. We're about getting dirty. And uh, we're going to randomly select our readers from a cup. Oh, and by the way, the first seven purchasers of any issue of Slake, you get one of these uh, little handsome coffee samplers. It's good coffee. Yeah. All right. I was, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Would you believe it? Yeah. <laughs> she took the longest to get here. Um, do you want me to, okay. First up is Diana Turkin. The lovely, the talented Diana Turkin just graduated from uh, Mills. Mills, yes, with a master's in poetry. She's from the South Bay, woo woo, South Bay. And she drove here from El Segundo and it took her an hour and a half 
just, yeah, from door to door. Diana just was one of these rare uh, uh, occasions where something just came through the transom and uh, it uh, stood. We read those things. Yeah, we do read them from time to time. And it stood out and uh, we read it and we're like, oh, she had a bunch of them, like a handful, and they're all effing good. And uh, we got in touch with them and we were shocked to find out she was so young and so smart and so beautiful. And so we considered not running it. But we didn't want to discriminate in that way. So here she is, Diana Turkin. All right. Wow, going first, that's kinda that's kinda nutty. I will try not to disappoint you guys. So I just graduated and I did a whole thing on California and the West and the Donner Party and all the weird stuff about LA that I love. So I'm gonna read just, just a couple of them. Yeah. All right. I mean, Luke's gonna read like a book, so. Oh, well, the hell with that. Okay, so this one is called California. The weight of your own destiny in a ripe orange, heavy in your hand. Or older, the grams of sediment in a small gunny sack. Bleached earth in a span of sky, I am the widest measurable distance in a creation story. The softening and sharpening of syllables, foreign or acquired, an erosion of rocky turf into the Pacific breaks. There is more desert than coast, but the promise of a cliff, an end, and inevitability is enough to drive the most bare of wagon trains like an old snake making way to the shade of the rock. I will absorb your bones like the earth takes your last drops of water. Will you risk trading your wildness to tame me? Or confusing yourself with the brutality that had been bound in velvet ribbons, claim this aridity, and the heat on your brow will fold itself into your dreams, your nightly prayers? Do not try to go back when the direction is distorted by fever, and your stubbornness, since too much has been cast off. You will become native. Let the dust be your camouflage until the sun stains you darker and your skin is christened with the absence of rain. So um, I mentioned tonight that I would read a poem about the Donner Party because it's uplifting. Right, so this one is about James Reed, who was one of the fathers there. It's called James Reed Descends into Madness Due East of the Salt Flats. There were two shots left by the time I was done, but I was not finished. The sagebrush more sparse than usual. The sky shot up, swallowed the shard with a hard, fixed quiet. I am fixing myself one, too. A full mouth and belly of desert silence. I've gone as west as I can. The tin would have bounced off the horizon if it were a wall or an unscalable mountain. The grass loses green to straw. The straw breaks the sand. I made the mistake of building a house solely of windows. Couldn't keep it dark if I tried. A swallow is a child with spikes. Inside the trunk is a thin milk. It flows after the first cut. It follows the hard whack of a calloused palm against the meat, the whack that splits that meat. All milk follows the same law. At night, it seeps into the earth, mimics an eastern current, four feet of dirt to stifle the echo. I had a horse once, with two eyes and four legs, a switch of a tail, a canvas house. I rested my back in the spokes of a wheel, wood split like a femur. We baptize our bruises in the cup of the axle, a first split to save our bones. 
When they left, I noticed my heels were cracked and bled into the dirt. Let's see. So, oh yeah, it's over. <laughs> two, one more, two more. What do you want? What do you guys want? <laughs> okay, the one right now then. Alright, so this is subtle here. She looked right at me, and over her shoulder I could see mountains at the feet of the plains, and a desert waiting for me to coax life from the parched, cracked land. We did not miss the cutoff. There were no tracks laid when we crossed. But the water had not dried. It had been diverted south and east. I balanced on the levees and kept dry. I could hear the house up the road. The silence of waiting, a creak for each second, settling deeper into the earth. We are immovable, but I must move. She looked right at me. I shouted, they filled the valley and ran through the hallway. The children would have scattered. While she slept, dust blew beneath the cracked window. And look, oranges in the yard, poppies in the, oh sorry, oranges in the trees, poppies in the yard. We left the snow on the pass. She looked right at me and rested her palm against the pillow. The linens were clean and I slept through morning. Crops returned like profit. I came to bed and slept hair trigger through the heat. Scales were mounted on the porch to measure the seasons. She rested her palm on the pillow, but I heard the brush rustling and ran naked out the back door. I came back three days later with a torn shirt and shot in my toe. I watched the dew run the length of the citrus like a lost latitude while the call for dinner drifted low and human below the wind. I felt the heat of the meat in my stomach. I could eat the dust and grow fat. I pushed dry seeds into the pillow while she read. I slept against her, folding the linens into my gut. She looked right at me. She had a path, but not west. I had one too, but I lost it. I lost it sitting Indian style on the floor by the bed, staring with my eyes drawn north in a sky overburdened with stars. I looked to the clouds for rain, but there were no clouds. I lost sentences in heaps falling from broken cupped palms. I smelled dust and cattle on the sheets. She did not move. I did not move. Then suddenly, I remembered. Never take no cutoffs and hurry along as fast as you can. Thank you. That was awesome. Way to go first and kill it. We're actually gonna be hearing from uh, a couple of uh, other poets as well and uh, we're um, we're really into poetry around Slake, around these Slake offices. Yeah, and I uh, hope if uh, you know one thing we can take from it is the vitality of poetry, and uh, particularly some of the the great voices and talent we have in this city, playing the trade, as it were. Do you want to? Should I? Yeah. You want to choose next? Yeah, I'll choose. Do you want speaking? Do you want to? Yeah. Both. Joseph, it's you. I do. How'd you know? Speaking of poets, and you, what we're going to do is you're going to hear a whole different, a whole different type of poetry now, uh, with Joseph. And uh, I love that there's such a variety of uh, in, in poetry still, um, even when. 
uh, fiction when prose seems to get mundane and, and sometimes uh, overly familiar uh, poetry can still surprise you and that's one of the things I love about it and I think Joseph is going to give us a great example of that. Lori can tell you more about him right now. Well, I just want to say one of the pleasures of doing Slake is that one, we get to introduce new writers like Diana. This is a fabulous job. But also, we, we also like to have um, these threads. And Joseph has been um, not just in issue four, but in, in other issues of ours. And it's, it's great to have to give people a home, like once you're in Slake, you're kind of part of the family. So I love having Joseph in this. And so we've had many different kinds of stories from him, and this is an example of more poetry. Joseph Madsen. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for coming. Thank you, Joe and Lori and Slake. They, this issue for the best reasons in the end, took them to circles of the bottomless world they did not want to go to. <laughs> so I hear. It's true. And uh, I'm very thankful they stuck it out and very honored to be included too, in this issue. Can I show you myself? I could do that. This poem, actually my first poem published by Slake, I don't publish much poetry um, uh, just because I write more prose um, is the only reason I, I hope, <laughs> I think. Um, and uh, it's, it's uh, always a welcome departure to work on something like this. It's called West of Olive and it's about a very grim place out on the bloody cornfields of Michigan. West of Olive. When he is born, do not name your son Randy. The rim of the shield, but not the shield. The failure wolf Randy is a name for the doomed. This devil's deliberation you can trust. The child will be damned. If so, bound to mire. They will come for him. Name him Randall or Randolph if needs be, but you must never call him Randy. No address, not to the extent that the name consumes him like it consumes two houses in fire. I am not sure about the blood these days. Blood confuses, blood chiefly when olivaceous, the turned lumen off its hide. I've read from the tree, licked along the sickle of the adamantine crime, until, like early snow, toked soft, down, down, by dirt, down, past the old county line. If only this fine white smoke and dust were snow. The ape-like countrymen in their opaque iniquity, screaming, but Randy, long-grown, quiet, smiling in anguish, sitting there, just sitting there with death, a hole in his skull. So goes the spoil for the cool hush in veins. Collect the cans and hope the truck starts. Winter, old man, all winter for the stone, the cold boy, winter. It grows down into young old Randy, the impotent wolf. Oh, how to roll it away. 
The claw hammer found sticky with blood out in the fallow behind the house. The corn bled and folding sad back into itself. The field 100 yards behind double tombstone charred by the old prairie. The whole prairie a cemetery in wait. Like all that salt left to the longing in the offing of the rain. No sire, no ma'am. Not all of the love in the world will save your son. Not this Randy, this bankrupt dreamer lit darkly in the red mud of his own fluid. The hand of some man, some men, not gods and not even demons, but human failures themselves, confusing the commute of failure for the divine. As if taking another man's life weren't terrestrial. One day I shall go back and envelop the sad, dumb angel. I will find him and I will find his name, the shade. O oh Lord, the cover so dark even in the sun. And I will take his hands. I will become his hands, his doom, his name, this splendid Randy I've warned you about. This son could be our son, all we must come to know. This uncle who I could love like a brother in his sorrow. And the men, I too will find them. Their hands, the killers. The men always coming for him, coming from the womb. My city, driving north so north that their untold fury, pregnant with finality, shall be told. The taking having long outlived the green, these two houses alight on the same lot. And the hush, cooling still. Estila, ancient, smoking in the dawn. Thank you very much. Is it too loud? Yeah. Do you guys want to get a cookie, beer, coffee while we're at it? White wine, red wine? And I also should add, you know, I think Joseph's uh, novel, Empty the Sun, is probably sold here, and you might want to pick that up. Thank you, Skylight. They have a very healthy stack. All right, Skylight. We, we love Skylight, by the way. They've, they've supported us from the beginning, so we're really grateful. Thank you, Skylight. And also, speaking of family, um, I'm trying to find it. Joseph, I, I fucking love you, man. You're awesome. Luke, I love you. Melissa, I love you. Anthony, I love you. Diana, I love you. David, I love you. Matthew, I love you. These are all people who have um, contributed to Slake who are here with us. And I actually can't, I'll, I'm gonna, I'll start crying if I think about how much that means to me and Lori. Thank you guys so much and thank you guys for coming. Um, and uh, Devery did the uh, amazing artwork for Joseph's uh, amazing poem, and she also did artwork that accompanied Joseph's uh, pieces in uh, previous, uh, in Slake issue two, uh, The Lords of to Little Tokyo. Did I get that right? No. The what? Warlords of Little Tokyo. God damn it, I was just a prefix off. I know, whatever. <laughs> but here, come on, get, come get some stuff, and we'll uh, we'll continue on with this Murray show. Everyone having a good time? Yeah. 
Um, oh, and also on the family tip, we have our first Slake baby arrived yesterday. Uh, Jerry Stahl and Elizabeth Banneke uh, both uh, came together through Slake uh, as uh, contributors and at a party, and uh, they, uh, they popped out a beautiful little girl yesterday. Well, she did most of the work, but he was there. And so I don't know if everyone knows that DeVry and Joseph are. I was just talking about all that. I know, but they might not know why you mentioned DeVry. Oh, well, yeah, they're, you know, they're a couple, too, and she's pregnant also. Yeah, so Second's like baby. Yeah, it's like a fertility <laughs> plan. If you, yeah, yeah, you're, hurry up. What the hell? Are you going all and nine you're, months? You're not going to name it Randy. <laughs> <laughs> all right, everybody good? Yeah? Let's get, let's get another reader. Yeah. Uh, no, you like picked this one. Oh, yeah. No, I picked one. I picked. No, I picked Joseph. Right. You guys are fucking great. You readers and you people. Melissa. Oh yeah. Woohoo! We love Melissa. Well, you know we're gonna introduce you. Okay. I mean, Melissa's not only a contributor to Slake. She is an essential part of our operation, um, getting the word out, um, being on Facebook, Twitter, um, just helping. It. I mean, and also just on Saturday, she helped me lug, you know, shelves and chairs uh, when we were at the uh, Lit Fest Pasadena. I mean, it's just. I mean, we love you. So thank you for that. And. She's an amazing writer. She really, she dug deep in herself for this piece. We pushed her, sent her back, um, and she came back with this uh, strong, um, important writing. And you want to say more? No, just she's awesome, and I love you, Melissa. Come on, come on, kid. Melissa Chadburn. Hi. Oh, this is a good-looking room. Um, so I think the only thing that I need to tell you um, is that this piece takes place in, in Westwood Park. There's this slide sort of sculpture that I, I at least I think it looks like a, an elephant's skull. And um, so this takes place in that slide. On the day that Brenna was going to get put on, there was so much buzz. We sat around just waiting for night to come. If a guy wanted to get put on, he'd just get jumped in. But if a girl wanted to get put on, it was a different story. The guys would run a train on her. Except for me. I didn't have to get put on because of B. I got a pass. All I had to do was watch and count. Before it was Brennan's turn, a guy called Shallow got jumped in. I sat in the vacant skull of the elephant slide my Doc Martens propped against the slope of the trunk while the guys circled each other on the ground down below. Shallow, a thin blonde boy, stood in the middle of the circle posturing, back hunched, elbows up. His eyes darted around the circle. He hopped around, fists up by his cheeks. The guys forming the circle looked like boys imitating gorillas, imitating vultures. Then suddenly, the first blow came from behind. Trax did it. Trax was a stout kid with muscles. He had a lisp that gave him a tinge of innocence. Innocence shifted by his deep vodka rasp. Once the hitting started, I began counting out loud. One, two, three. Smoking, counting, feigning disinterest. Shallow had no chance. 
The guys, at least 10, were all running in clothes, socked him at once. He looked at me. His eyes asked for mercy. I started to speed up my counting. Five, six, seven. He lifted his arms to his face, curved his body into the shape of a C. When I got to 30, they stopped. The swarm died down. The punches turned into hugs. Shallow lay slumped on the ground, his nose and eyes, the mushiest parts of him. Wet gobs of blood. One eye already swollen half shut. Oh, man. I think you broke my nose. They always said that. Most often it wasn't broken. That's how the guys got into whatever silly thing we were calling ourselves that day. The rabid bundle of guys that were jumping shallow in were ready to celebrate. Be bros. They poured beers on each other, hugged. Then Brenna came forward. She walked toward the slide. She was drunk. She stumbled on a rock. I searched her face for a sign. Maybe she wanted to change her mind. I wanted her to want to change her mind. But when she looked up, she only seemed more determined. She straightened her dress, smoothed her sharp black bob. The cloud of guys that were a circle of fury just moments ago started to act modest. They passed around a bottle, poured a little on the ground for my brother who was in jail. Some of them formed a line. I walked over to a bench. I sat on a bench facing the swings. Once Brenna reached the elephant, she turned around facing me. She put her hands on the slide behind her and propped herself up backward, like a kid hopping onto a kitchen counter. Only her feet slipped and she fell off balance. She looked drunk. She fell on the ground and the back of her head banged against the sculpture. A couple guys rushed to help her, prop her up. Yeah, sure. They're going to help her and then they're going to fuck her, I thought. I hated her. Something about her big eyes and her clumsiness made me hate her. I left my bench and went to the swings. I didn't wear socks and I could feel the sand pass through the eyelets in my shoes. I looked over occasionally and saw the line form. The sand was sifting between my toes from where I was sitting. I could make out little things and fill in the blanks. Shallow went first. When he left the elephant, Viper unbuckled his belt. He didn't have to bother because his pants were so big they fell off his flat hips. Some guys walked forward with their cocks hanging out the slit in front. Tracks was ne next in line. He warmed himself up, spit on his hand, stroked himself. He wanted to appear big. He joked awkwardly while he was waiting in line with the other guys. From my spot on the swing, I imagined them pulling Brenna closer. Brenna, the paper girl, tiny bones. They'd tear a hole in the crotch of her fishnets and take her from there. Brenna probably looked at the ceiling of the hollowed out skull of the elephant. Maybe she was counting with me at that moment. One, two, three. It didn't stop at 30. I looked at the moon. I tried to swing toward it, curling my feet underneath me and then shooting my legs forward, keeping my toes pointed. I wanted to launch myself higher and higher. I remembered how my brother always jumped from the swing to the ground when we got to the highest point. That was him, fearless. I got so high, I was afraid the chains of the swing would wrap around the pole. That's when I brought my feet back to the ground. I stopped the swing and broke the dream. There's not a dry in the house. Thanks. 
How many of you, is this your first uh, time at a Slake reading? Oh, that's great. Thank you so much for coming. Do you like what you're hearing? Thank you. Um, so how this works is uh, if we sell books here, they continue to like us, and they continue to give us nice displays back there, and we continue to maybe sell books, and we continue to maybe keep going. Nothing's guaranteed. It's very, very, very difficult, I can tell you that, to do an indie publication, totally indie, uh, of, the, of this quality and uh, this much care. Um, but I hope you're seeing uh, what it's worth tonight. And uh, again, thank you all for coming and taking the time out. And we're down to two. And even when we're down to one, we're still going to do that thing. Yeah. Who did? Was it my turn? Did you? Okay. I'm so nervous. Luke. They're saying Luke Davies. Holy cow, Luke Davies. This guy's literally the greatest poet who's uh, um, not also a novelist, but who is also a novelist, but isn't named Joseph Matson, but is Luke Davies and isn't just graduated from Mills. Mills, yeah. Um, but in all seriousness, uh, Luke is an astounding, astounding talent. And uh, um, I think uh, when, when, when we first started Slake, uh, one of the people we really wanted to go after was Luke. And he, uh, we approached him with a story idea in our first issue. And it was about doing a, a sort of rumination on the, on the movie Cisco Pike, which uh, um, highly recommend everyone watching a, a cult. It, and, and it happened to be something that Luke was, or, or maybe you suggested that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> like that. But anyway, we, you know, is and anyway, he uh, is a movie that meant a lot to me as well. And uh, Luke, uh, I, I, what he did with that simple idea is just, uh, I think it, it just shows everything that can be done with language, how many dimensions it can work on, how many different layers uh, it can it can bore into you, how many different nerves it can touch, how many different emotions it can bring up, and just how much it can say. It's past, present, and future all in this thing. It's nostalgia, and it's and and Luke has continued to just blow us away. Um, he's an amazing writer, and I suggest you really research and look into him and and take the time to discover Luke Davies if you don't know him already. Sorry. Come here. Yeah. No, I'll just say um, that every time we put together these issues, there's always there's usually one piece that is the first um, story that we know everything's going to be all right. And in this particular issue, it was Luke's um, interferon psalms. He's got this. Uh, he's also published in Australia, and there's this book out of uh, this epic poem, Interferon Psalms. And when Joe and I read this, we knew that this had to be in Slake right away because you can't get the book here. Or is it now available? Or no, you still can't get the book. So the only place you can buy it is in Slake. You can get a little piece of it, or you can go online and get. Uh, yeah. It's another reason why this is important because New York. Come on. We need to do our own. Yeah, yeah. We, we need to publish more Luke in the world. There needs to be more Luke in the world. So, Luke Davies. Well, funny that you should bring up the issue of the availability of <laughs> my books, because before I start, I'm going to shamelessly tout and spruik my books, which I've got sent over from Australia. And they're not available in the States. 
Well, so this is my novel. Um, this is the novel Candy, which is available here. But tonight I have three copies for sale of the Australian edition, which has a far more beautiful cover than the American edition. It's a it's a Saudek photograph. The American cover is like a. It got made into a film, so the American cover is one of those film. You know, it's a still from the film of Heath Ledger and Abby Cornish, and it says. Now a major motion picture. <laughs> I notice they never say now a minor motion picture. So I have three copies of Candy, which I'm selling for $15 each, which is less than it costs me to buy it and the, uh, the air freight charges from Australia. Uh, and I have... Uh, I have two copies of my rare and impossible to get novel God of Speed, and then, uh, which I won't be reading from tonight. Uh, and I have a couple of copies each of uh, these two companion volumes of poetry. Uh, Totem, which came out a few years ago, and this one which just came out recently, Interferon Psalms, of which the extract is in the current Slake magazine. Everything's $15, which is, as I said, way less than I, it cost me to get it over here. Yeah. If, however, as Joe said, everybody here is basically slate contributors, I don't expect you to have any money in this, so therefore it won't. Uh and also, uh, Joseph, I, the thing about Randy, in Australia, the name, uh, the word Randy means horny. And so, uh, as an. Oh, does it? Okay, right. Anyway, and. Uh, all right. As an, a childhood in Australia, it's just like a super funny name. It's very, it feel, it's very American, and it sort of feels you would giggle about it. Um, this is uh, a short story called Breaststroke. In the basement of the old gymnasium on the Rue de Rennes, near the Boulevard du Montparnasse, is a small area containing a swimming pool no longer than 10 meters and a steam room in which time slows down, and I am down there with my wife today. The rest of Paris scurries above us, its urgent beauty fragmented into available units. Everybody needs a piece of it, and everybody's on a tight schedule. Thank God for the hyper-efficiency of the metro system. Often for long stretches during the day, the pool and sauna are deserted. My wife is 40 years old and eight months pregnant. She is gloriously, abundantly beautiful, and I love her now as much as ever. We haven't always had an easy time, what with miscarriages and some jail I did. Damn, it is good then to get this far to be here at all. Yesterday, running my hand over the taut expanse of her belly, I found myself reminding myself to breathe. So close was the idea that after the long jumble of years and the learning to stand at last, purely good things could happen and the birth might be real. There isn't a parole officer in the whole of France who means anything to me. Last night at the Bar Sancerre, I said, I think I've got this right, un whisky et un coca, s'il vous plaît. I could have jumped out of my skin, so great was my joy when the, when the waiter served the drinks I had asked for. My wife had been studying the phrase book harder than me. I've never been one for books, so she prompted me along. But it was me who said the words. This is adrenaline, like in an armed robbery, but a good adrenaline, not bad. 
The lighting is dim in the sous-sol of the gym. There are, however, lights beneath the water in the pool so that it stands out like a rectangle of blue brighter than the air that surrounds it. I sit sprawled on a white plastic bench, my arms spread wide while my wife glides by me, seemingly lit from below. We smile. I stand up to go back inside the steam room. In there, in the steam, I feel my pores open, and through them my soul, confined and restless, oozes itself out, expands, relaxes a little, stretches its legs. My thoughts disarrange themselves. The steam room is tiled, moisture condenses on the low ceiling and drips back down so that the minutes are punctuated by the haphazard plips and pings of the drops landing on the glazed floor, as though the steam, a translucent medium, holds aloft and prolongs their echoing. The steam itself has softened all the symmetry of the room and seems only to disperse on the opposite walls where the lights shine softly behind their covers like pale full moons in a drifting mist. I breathe heavily in the heat, leaning forward from the stone ledge I'm sitting on, staring down at my distant feet. I don't know much, but what I know is this that my radiant wife, as graceful as a swan, is breaststroking up and down the length of the pool on the other side of these sweating walls. Every few minutes there is a gentle hissing sound and a new cloud of steam rises from the copper pipes protruding from diagonally opposite corners of the floor. My feet disappear. For a moment it becomes even harder to breathe and my skin prickles at the rise in heat. Absurdly, every time this happens I think of that first hissing of gas. In my mind I picture it falling from vents in the ceiling in the shower rooms in Dachau and Belsen. Could it have seemed like this? I know that the answer is no. Blighted by superstition, I walk out from the steam room into the open space of the pool. The cool air wraps around my skin like a blanket for healing burns. I walk back along the pebbled edge of the pool to the white plastic vent bench. My wife's blonde hair is tied up in a makeshift bun. The surface of the water barely seems to move as she plows through it like the figurehead of some serene ship. I watch her from the bench, which is located about a third of the way along the shallow end. She reaches the end. She turns and smiles at me, then continues on her way. Hey there, I say. She looks over again. What? Everything all right in there? Mid-stroke, she nods twice, as if savoring a deep and pleasant truth, her head still turned towards me, and then she changes direction and comes across to where I sit. She raises her arms onto the edge of the pool. Come here. She's grinning. The tips of her hair are wet. I move forward and crouch on my ankles. I lean down to her and she hauls herself a little out of the water. Our lips meet halfway between. It's a brief wet kiss, tasting of chlorine and lipstick and her dark hot breath. She pulls away and laughs, and now I'm smiling too. She pushes off from the side with her legs and glides out on her back to the middle of the pool. She's so big with that child of ours inside her, th inside her that her belly protrudes from the water like a small island. Sometimes there's such strength in her blue-gray eyes that it's hard to know where to look and I find myself fidgeting as if in the presence of wisdom and suffering. Oh, you are a skinny, skinny man, I say to myself. I'll just, um, <laughs> thank you. Um, and since this is what's in the latest slake, I'll read a very short extract from um, Interferon Psalms. This is, um, if I can find the spot, uh, well, this is late in the book, <laughs> after a lot of trauma. <laughs> I returned to the poem, the one true place, whose 
blood was the syntax, whose body was the word. Thus I felt fortunate to have had much experience with blood. Part of the challenge of being heroic was that the object of my desperation would desert me, but the desperation wouldn't. I knew there was pain, but the pain was not aching. She drank too much, she was bored with drinking. What I loved was the waiting and the almost, the I'm lonely, the I dare you to amuse me, the shall I fly to meet you, the surrender, the I'm coming, and the scar on her forehead. I knew I wasn't permanent, it wasn't that. But I became so temporary, even unto myself, that in losing my blood and the life I had known, I also lost the space in which to think carefully, to act with care, to walk quietly. A lot to be said for those quiet, deliberate steps. Redeem my exile, man of sorrows. Restlessly I understood before God who was like a river to me that restlessly in cheap hotels deep in the middle of night the room apace with thoughts I understood so restlessly with retrospect the why of drugs. I remembered thee Zion and the cedars and I was a robber then too. I was a robber and lost my youth to robbery. I cleaned out from my life big chunks of sky. I cleaned out swathes of sky, self, presence, picnics, grace, and all was felt as robbery. So what would I say in a letter? That my blood was seven years older? That the world was painted thus? That she had come through the birth canal of her own idiocy? I'd had a forceps birth myself and been a pinhead ever since, so the extended labor argument was not my strong suit. You know all this, great Noah, that I had sought to reduce confusion, that the effort to survive her careless violence was immense, that knowledge by itself is isolation, that the particular well embraced is not knowledge but knowing, that she had not only loved me but desired me, she had written, this is what I am wearing when you pick me up at the airport. That terror before the abyss of the self was not the same as the transcendent in free fall. She had written, you pull the dress over my head. That time collapsed in singularities. That you, great Noah, had loved the truth in dark places. That you grafted wisdom onto mystery. That I became the vine of that. That the future was see-through. That life was the gap between oblivion and memory. And that the myriad claims of bustle were thus all the more absurd. That my blood was seven years older now, that the earth and all the inhabitants thereof are dissolved, that I must find kindness even in my goodbyes, for everyone was weary, and surely she not least. Thank you. Come and see me if you want to buy a book. <laughs> Put that back there. Thanks. And if anyone else has anything to sell, please feel free to bring it up here and we'll give it a fair showing. Should we add, um, we should add that in Joseph's book, he, I mean in uh, Luke's book, he is called um, the greatest living love poet. I think, I think you know why. Um, so, uh, so this is, uh, this is the kind of stuff that, that world-class literature, poetry, essay, memoir, that, you know, just might not get a chance if it was, uh, if we was left up to New York. It's a, it, and that's a big part of what we're trying to do here is, is establish our uh, control of our own means of production here in Los Angeles to publish and, and give uh, a uh, fair showing to all these great voices and talents and uh, your support helps that 
So um, thank you guys for coming here again and, and supporting this quixotic enterprise. And let's see, do you want to pick? <laughs> Who could it be? Oh my God, it's Clay Stakely. Clay is our... Uh, by the way, do you guys, do you just not want me to bring this stuff? Because I, I don't have to. Um, oh, you do? Is it good? Yeah? You want it? No? Okay. Because the, the white wine is on ice, by the way. It's okay. Ice. Yeah, it's Martini and Rossi on the rocks. Um, Clay, how the hell did we run into each other? Someone introduced us, right? That was it? Another one of those? That's fucked up. See, this is what happens when you actually spend the time pouring through mounds and mounds and mounds and mounds of stuff. We come up with the, we find these beautiful gems like Diana and Clay, and there was someone else here who came that way too, right? You know, yeah, but, um, and uh, Clay's story is uh, another one of those uh, that we just feel so happy to have uh, come across. Clay is a, an actor and a, a playwright as well, right? Yeah, and uh, he's here in Los Angeles, and uh, he's been working uh, for a while uh, as an actor. And um, he wrote the story, and it was one of the another one of the ones that you know sat there and just uh, kept kept speaking to us. And uh, eventually, uh, it talked its way into Slake. And uh, Clay will read, and you'll understand why. Thanks, Clay. Hi, I'm Clay, and this is a story I wrote. <clears throat> it's called Bride and Groom. Can you hear me? Okay. He stares at himself in the mirror, pulling at the flesh beneath his left eye with his index finger and glaring as if daring himself to flinch. She splashes and bustles in the bathroom, a tempest of water, towels, creams, and sprays. He turns up the music, Nat King Cole singing You Stepped Out of a Dream. He grimaces and releases his eye, noting how long it takes the skin to return to the starting block. When are they getting here? She shouts from the bathroom. Six. When? Six. When is that? He looks at his watch. Seven minutes. Shit, I'm not even close to ready. Don't worry, they're always late. They are? He groans and sits on the bed, unbuttoning his jacket. She herself, of course, doesn't realize that they are always late because she herself is always late. The queen of the distracted haze. She was bad enough 15 years ago when they moved out here. Now with a decade and a half of Los Angeles and more dollars than he wishes to count disintegrating in her slipstream, she herself is a queenly anomaly, a rapidly moving body that is always running behind. Yes, he says, they are. They're always late. If they say 6, then they'll be here at 6.40. She sticks her head out the door and grins girlishly at him, though the effect is handicapped by the fact that she looks like a lopsided Marcel Marceau in her striped dress and only one eye done. What if they plan on coming at 5.20 so they'd actually get here at 6? It's impossible. She herself frowns, looks down at her false, the false eyelash in her hand. Why? Because that would require planning, forethought. She shoots him that look then disappears into the bathroom. He looks at himself in the mirror again. Consideration for other people. What, honey? Nothing, darling. What are they picking us up in? The Planet Smasher, I suppose. What? The big Cadillac. The SUV? That's not an SUV, it's a galactic battleship. I expect to hear the music from Star Wars every time it pulls in the driveway. It takes two minutes just to look at the whole thing. I think it's nice. Go to hell. What, honey? Nothing, darling. 
She looks out the window, half expecting to see jo he looks out the window, half expecting to see Joel and Susie tootling up in their behemoth on time, just to prove him wrong. Joel waving a meaty hand, his easy face splitting into a veneered smile. He senses a faint twang and, still staring out the window at the spot where the battleship isn't, tumbles down the barely submerged swamp paths of dread that end in images of she herself and Joel, laughing at some inside joke, her freshening Joel's drink and lightly touching his wrist with one of her long, delicate fingers as she asks him about some glamorous client, the sound of her laughter ringing like a hundred champagne glasses at midnight on New Year's Eve. He returns to the mirror. He's aging, he doesn't mind. At least not in the suit, with the neatly trimmed hair. In the mornings, in his pajamas, seeing his reflection sitting on the toilet in that mirrored marble and fresco bathroom she commissioned from some Pompeian contractor. That's a different story. Sad, paunchy, spotty old bastard, sitting with his pants around his ankles and a cat twining between them. His hair sticking out on the sides like Grandpa Munster. He refolds his handkerchief. The suit is a trusty Geeves and Hawks, Savile Row, not too trendy, not too conservative, not too expensive, not too cheap, right in the middle. Lean where it should be, broad and back and shoulders, he cuts a mean silhouette. She herself steps out of the bathroom. Now she wears a red dress. Is that them? What? I heard something. Is it them? That was a traffic helicopter. I can see how one might mistake that for the planet smasher, but I promise you'll know it by the sound of its thrusters scorching our yard. Ha ha. It may evaporate your lap pool. That would be rude. You changed. Yes, the stripes seem too casual. It's an outdoor wedding. I know, in Malibu. Trust me, I do, mostly. She gives him a quick, appraising look. You look nice. Thank you, darling. She returns to the bathroom. It is a lovely late summer afternoon, and the sky is just fading into a light purplish blue. He takes in a deep breath at the open window and releases it with a contented sigh. There's something in these moments when the light angles through the backyard just so, and the temperature and the smell of the air cooperate, that swells his chest and brings a deliriously happy, melancholy, nostalgic lump to his throat. It conjures a memory he can't pin down, an amalgamation of many moments, probably, images and scents that are muddy but perfectly preserved, prehistoric insects in amber. Fireflies blinking in tiny, blurry streaks under the trees. Himself in a linen shirt, sweat drying as the heat lifts for dusk. A beautiful girl laughing, wearing a sundress like the ones they used to wear. Glasses of white wine, then a restaurant, dark and cool against the hot afternoon. Again, the beautiful girl. Music, abandoned a courtyard. The rush of images always ends with mild surprise at the realization that the beautiful girl was she herself. The image of her in that sundress at 23, the image of her now in the evenings in her nightgown, leaning forward to rub lotion on her legs. These things heave into his vision and he melts. Even at dinner parties where he watches her laugh and tell stories while he feels the simultaneous urge both to kiss her cheek and smash a glass against the side of her head. Even then he loves her with a gravity that staggers him. Thanks. Ladies, we just want to love you. That's all we want to do. Just help us help you. Um, Clay, thank you so much. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you, Luke. Thank you, Joseph. Thank you, Diana. And thank all of you guys for coming. Um, there's no need to, uh, you don't have to hurry out of here. Uh, remember, the first seven purchasers get a handy, handsome coffee sampler pack. It's gone. They're up at the front, so they'll know who the first seven are. <laughs> yeah, see? Um, and do you guys have any questions for any of the writers, uh, any of the, uh, any of the, or Laura or I or anything like that? We'd be happy to answer. If you don't, 
that's very cool too. Um, did, did everyone hear that? Did you hear the question? Can you tell me the question again? Right, the setting and content. Well, maybe you have to purchase a slake to get. Oh, Melissa can tell you. Right. Okay, so um, you know, unfortunately, this piece is is nonfiction. So stand up. I'm tr <laughs> so this is how it goes. <laughs> um, and and the initial title was getting put on, which uh, apparently is street slang. So I didn't know that. I thought everybody knew what it meant to get put on. But to get put on means how the ways in which you get into um, a, a crew, not even a real gang, but just like a bunch of uh, kids that were mostly privileged um, and uh, mostly uh, grew up out here on the west side of Los Angeles. So um, the way in which uh, boys get put on is they get bit up, beat up for 30 seconds and the way that girls get put on is they have a, a train pulled on them which apparently is also street slang which means every boy has sex with her. Basically, you call it sex. To the, no, it's not sex. It's to uh, we're talking about boys that are within the ages of 13 to 16, and there's a random adult uh, sometimes, but it's it's usually just um, penetration. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I feel really Thank you. There's more in here. Uh, anybody else? Oh, thank God you came. <laughs> no, it's great. Where are you going? I have an MFA thesis degree. Oh my God. We'll take. We can do it here together. <laughs> thank you for coming. Hey, good luck with your paper and grading tonight. Uh, sorry. Um, you mean, how do we tell who's a Hollywood writer from a New York writer? Yeah. I mean, how, how, do, how, do we, how do we make the stamp of Los Angeles have an identity? Well, I, I mean, I think we both, and, and I will try not to hog the whole thing, I, yeah, I, you know. <laughs> I th but I, we both have been working as journalists, editors, and writers here in Los Angeles for a long time, and um, I... Pardon me? Yeah, thank, yeah, we we appreciate that, and we try and support that as much as possible. But Los Angeles does have its own identity. It does have it's it's got an incredible purpose. It's the it is the leading city of the 21st century here in 
the United States and possibly the world. We're taking on the, as we said, the, the, the privileges and, and the challenges of the 21st century like no other city is in, in, in America, perhaps here. And it's an incredible, incredibly diverse, uh, just sprawling, crazy city that sometimes actually works. And, you know, I feel, I, if, I feel like if Los Angeles is, it's like, it's where we got to put our, our flag in the ground and the flag is called hope. This is where, you know, this is where hope comes to live or die in a lot of ways. And, and I think, I think that's, you know, part of the identity of, of what we're doing uh, here and what we're trying to reflect. And it just happens naturally. What has been missing is someone who will give voice and air and time and energy to all that which is already here in some sort of concentrated way like we're trying to do here. So it, it can be reflected. It's already here. We're just trying to reflect it in some way that seems more tangible. I mean, I think one of the reasons we all love living here is that there's not one Los Angeles style. The Los Angeles style is what you heard tonight. There's all these different voices, and wherever we've been editing, we, you know, we didn't, we don't want a house style. We want an individual voice to stand out. So I, I mean, what I love, you know, is just hearing tonight. All these writers are so different from each other, and and that's the beauty of Los Angeles that these voices could exist and be singular and not have to sound like the other. That's, you know, I am so impressed by what you do and who you are, and I just want to thank you. I just think you're very beautiful. But what about Lori? <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> thank you. Well, we're impressed with you. Thank you for coming. Anybody else? Uh, okay, well, get a book. The, the writers will stick around if you want them to be signed. Uh, please, for God's sakes, partake, all right? It means a lot to me that nobody goes home without anything. And thank you, Skylight. Thank you, Skylight. Oh, did you want, I'm sorry. No, we, we covered. You have been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.